rested in the I'm ready for my cuffs up. I should come up sometimes, see me. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Pretty sure. Stuff that dreams are made of. Hi, Wendy here. Before we start off our episode today, I want to remind everybody to check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Also, please leave a rating or comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on social media by simply searching Silver Screen Time Machine, and please make sure you follow our podcast, Silver Screen Time Machine, anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome again to Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy's Classic Film Review. And today I have a guest, Mark. Hello, Mark. Welcome. Hello, Wendy. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming and being our guest. Do you want to say a little bit about yourself? I have a small production company, works with showrooms, video, photography, anything that makes a dollar. Yeah. You do very nice video work. I've seen some of it. Oh, go on. (laughs) And you didn't pick this film. I picked this film, but you were kind enough. Well, you know, I'm glad you picked it because I was unaware. Yeah, so it was very kind of you to allow me to choose the film. Mm -hmm. And we are getting in our time machine and we are going back to 1940. And we are going to talk about... Waterloo Bridge. Waterloo Bridge, the second Waterloo Bridge. And if you asked me about Waterloo Bridge before I saw the movie, I'd I'd say Monet paintings. (laughs) You know, because he painted the bridge like 40 times. Yeah, so Waterloo Bridge nominated for two Oscars, Best Cinematography and Best Score. I think good choices for the two Oscars. We'll get to the score part. I, I don't understand that. Oh, okay. Well, we like the cinematography, I think. Oh, love the cinematography. We could have probably added Best Actress. I don't know why she wasn't. Maybe because she, she was, had just... Maybe it was uh, Gone kind of, with the Wind Overload Yeah, they, they kind of were weird about nominating people back to back. So Yeah, I thought she was phenomenal. She was, but we will get to her. This is based on a 1930 play by Robert Sherwood. Robert Sherwood based this play on his own experience in World War I, where he met an American girl who had lost her job as a chorus girl and invited him back to her place. Sort of similar to what you will, we will talk about yeah. in this. And that sounds a little more like the first, the 29 movie. Yeah, so there, she... was, there was an adaptation in 1931 Directed by James Whale, who's a known director of horror films, Frankenstein. He did Frankenstein. He did The Invisible Man. He did all those uh, early horror films. But he also did this 1931 Waterloo Bridge, starring Mae Clark and Kent Douglas as Myra and Roy. One of the things I wanted to say about Robert Sherwood that I thought was significant First of all, he never went, allegedly never went back to this American girl's place. He forgot her address. He alleges he forgot her address. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Who knows? But anyway, he says he never went back to meet the girl. But he called her and other girls, quote, civilian victims of war. That's accurate. Yeah. So the screenplay for this particular film, and there is a difference between the 1931 film and this 1940 film, because, of course, now we're dealing with the production code. In 1931, right. that was pre-code. I typically prefer something that's a little more raw, and I think I like the first movie, but I like this one quite a bit. I've never seen the first movie, but what I've read about it sounds pretty good. I've never seen the first movie either, but they had to be very careful in this movie the way they dealt with the the prostitution angle. They couldn't even talk about it directly. It had to be just very hinted at. You know, there's a couple of good scenes about that, too where it's conveyed without saying. So the screenplay by S... Okay, when we're talking about the crew, we're going to get into a lot of these MGM-type regular contract people when we come to the crew. So this is a very studio picture. This is not the kind of picture where the director brought his own crew along. This is basically all MGM contract people. So the screenplay is by S.N. Berman, and of course they're going to have really hard names just to make my life difficult. Hans Rameau and George Froschel. Again, these folks had to deal with trying to tell this story about what eventually becomes prostitution with the production code. So that couldn't have been easy. And they also changed, they had to change some of the circumstances and they also changed the ending from the 1931 version and probably from the play as well. Yeah, I know we don't want to spoil it, but the the ending is a stunner. 
Yeah, but they did change it a little bit. Mm-hmm. One I noted, George Froschel, if that's how you say his name, he actually did the screenplay for Mrs. Miniver, and he won an Oscar for that, so he's an Oscar winner. The other ones didn't have Oscars. The score that you have complaints about, I gather. No, it's not a complaint. It's a, <laughs> it's a curiosity. Okay. Because the score is predominantly Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. Yeah. So, and got to be like all, 80% except for it's a long way to Tipperary. No, they and, also um, play Auld Lang Syde quite a lot through the film. Right. But the main theme that goes throughout is Tchaikovsky. So I don't know if they give an Oscar for derivations thereof. It, it was too derivative to be a full-fledged score. I think he does have score music in there as well that he composed as well. There's yeah. definitely, I mean, it's not completely. There is some parts yeah. where there's some score. I but, mean, I uh, had the Swan Lake album in college and played it to death. You know, so I'm pretty familiar with it. So I enjoyed it. But when I saw that he was nominated, it made me wonder because Tchaikovsky at this point was already dead, so they couldn't nominate him. Well, and like I said, he also played Auld Lang Syde frequently throughout the movie as well. It, it reoccurs in many scenes. The score is by Herbert Stothart. Stothart. Uh, Stothart. Is that how you want to say it? That's it how I want H. to say it. Stothart. I think the H is silent. Stothart. Oh, Stothart. Okay, well, we'll go with your... Uh, Bad he, move, Wendy. You may not like be very fond of the way he did the score, but he did have 10 Oscar nominations, and you know he won an Oscar for the score of The Wizard of Oz. It, it, which is amazing because totally different. He did The Wizard of Oz, and, yeah. And I don't have a... It's not a complaint. I love the score. I love Swan Lake. I like Tchaikovsky. So I don't really have a complaint. It's just curious that he would be nominated. Yeah. Apparently, he did scores for many literary classics, including... Marx Brothers. Well, that wasn't exactly one of them, but (laughs) yes, Pride and Prejudice, but he also did A Night at the Opera. So he's obviously very versatile if he can do The Wizard of Oz, Waterloo Bridge, Pride and Prejudice, and A Night at the Opera. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was really interesting that I read, I don't know if you saw this, his first wife killed herself in front of him while he was playing the piano. Oh my God, I would have remembered that had I read it. Yeah, that's <sighs> very dramatic. With how? Well, they didn't specify. Oh my gosh. Maybe he killed her with a C chord. And it just said that she killed herself right in front of him while he was playing the piano. She must have really gotten sick of whatever he was playing. Well, She's like, I've yeah, had enough you do of that. that one more time and I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> the sad uh, thing, too, yeah. about that is apparently their four-year-old daughter was also in the house at the time, so... That's the yeah. problem with killing yourself is that more often than not, you hurt the people around yeah, you more than you exactly. killed yourself. And there, well, we don't, okay, never okay. mind. I'm not saying anything about, okay, anyhow. The editor is George Boehmer. He was also nominated for an Oscar for Oklahoma. He also did Peyton Place and the Asphalt Jungle, another one of these people that, like I said, these are just MGM contract people. Mm-hmm. This obviously was from MGM. So was he fairly young then when he did this? The uh, editor? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But these are just people that have worked when, in MGM their entire career, basically. They're, they're MGM people. Does that mean that it's cookie cutter? I would say it may be a little cookie cutter. Yeah, I would say probably Roy for that time period. Roy was cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. But Vivian Lee's performance was went well, beyond that. We you know, know so that Vivian Lee is not an MGM contract player. I did not know so that. So that is one person that isn't because she is a British actress. So. And she's coming off the success of Gone with the Wind, which I think chronologically, I always think Gone with the Wind would be afterwards because it's color, but this yeah. goes back to black and white, and I'm glad it did because it was beautiful. Yeah. Also, we'll get to the cinematographer in a moment, but I did want to make a quick mention of the costume design, Adrian. Adrian was a very famous costume designer in the 20s and 30s. He did a lot of designing for Greta Garbo. He did a lot of those really long, beautiful gowns from the 1930s that you'd Mm -hmm. see on like Jean Harlow, those Mm -hmm. sort of gowns. Uh, He was never awarded an Academy Award for costume design. And the reason was because that award was never given out before 1948. And he had retired by then. Because it was considered a a lower form of art? I guess. It wasn't part of the Academy Awards until 1948, and he had already retired. So that's kind Hmm. of a shame because he was a very well-known costume designer. The thing about this, though, is I don't really think... And he was known for not liking to do period pieces. I don't really think... The dresses they're wearing is very beautiful, and they're beautiful dresses, but they're not really for the time frame that they're supposed to be in. (laughs) Because the main portion of this film is supposed to be set in World War I. And they're clearly wearing outfits that look like they should be in World War II. (laughs) Yeah, and it seemed like the only time the costumes were not the decent amount was when they were at uh, in the upper class when they're at Roy's estate and there was a dance or those well, kind of things. Well, everything they wear is a costume. 
Well, yes, so, uh, me a- too. Anything that anything that she's they're dressed in is mm-hmm. something. But what he I designed. mean is, uh, the the costume seemed more elaborate when it was in um, the upper crust sections of the movie. But when it's just uh, Myra. Um, it's she's usually dressed fairly normal. Yeah, but that was normal for 1940, not for 1917. Okay, <laughs> that's not what not what girls were wearing in the, the World War One period. So now we're coming to the one that I think is the big Ooh, important crew person, the cinematographer Joseph Ruttenberg. Yes, ten Oscar nominations, won four Oscars, The Great Waltz, another Mrs. Miniver guy somebody up there likes me which i don't know that film and Gigi, and he also did gaslight and dr jekyll and mr hyde he became an innovator in his use of cranes and dolly devices and he often designed to capture scenes in a single take yes he did that particularly in the beginning the first scene and the and then later in the movie when Roy goes into the station. It's a big, long pan following him from the beginning to mm. the end, and she comes in and, and does the same thing. So, yeah, I, it's not uh, a touch of evil, but it's not bad. Yeah, and another distinguishing aspect of his camera work was to keep the performers in sharp focus while softening the background, thus highlighting the actors almost three-dimensionally. Yeah, he did it. That was part of the beauty of it. And also, even in one scene, there was a water glass in front of her that just kind of glowed. Yeah, you know, like if you touched it, your hand might go through. He does a beautiful job. This is beautiful black and white shooting. He was very particular about the lighting. He didn't let anybody else do the lighting but himself. As mm-hmm. somebody who does video production, I think you probably understand that aspect. Yeah, control freaks. Yeah. So he was very particular, and he wanted to make sure he was creating the lighting to create the right atmosphere for every possible oh, scene. I don't know if we're going to go scene by scene. We will. Okay. Yeah, we will go to we'll the We'll talk plot. about that later. Yeah. But lastly, lastly, we should talk about our director, Mervyn Leroy, mm-hmm. one Oscar nomination for Random Harvest. He started out in vaudeville and then he moved to films. He actually directed Little Caesar, which would become sort of a very popular gangster movement mm-hmm. in the early 1930s. And I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. Yeah, which is a Paul Muni film. Mm. But he also did, he was versatile because he directed some musicals, Gold Diggers of 1933, but he did some film noir, Johnny Eager, which is another Robert Taylor movie. And he was kind of a rough and tumble guy because he lived through the earthquake of San Francisco and never went to school because he didn't have enough money. He sold newspapers. An actor saw him on the street selling newspapers and said, hey, kid, do you want to be in a play? And after that, he never looked back. Even won a Charlie Chaplin impersonation contest that had over a thousand entrants in the oh, contest. Yeah. So he was pretty good. I would have liked to have seen that. And this film is a favorite film of both Vivian Lee and Robert Taylor. They both called this their favorite film. Although they also both thought that Robert Taylor was miscast as a British officer. And he makes no Didn't attempt. Didn't come across as British to me. No but, attempt at a British accent. You know, and I'm sure that old Vivian wanted to have uh, Larry. Larry in it. Mm, that she um, definitely did. And uh, after watching this movie, I wonder if sometimes Vivian and Larry sat down to dinner at night and they didn't say a word. They just did it all with their face. <laughs> you know? I don't so. know. I, I can't. I have to confess not being the biggest fan of Laurence Olivier, but find a very stagey you know, and over I, the top but you know that's my opinion right i mean when Unpopular i was growing opinion. up when i was growing up uh he and john wayne were considered the pinnacle of acting you know well, and on polar opposites that's very very sad for the world well, if that's up, the pinnacle you grew up of, in a small town of west john texas wayne. and see what it is but yeah i was never i he's Lawrence a Olivier, stage actor yeah he's a stage and he actor. looks like a stage actor when he's on film yeah and that, yeah. to me, that's, well, whatever. We're not going to get in Sir Lawrence no, Olivier. No, it's yes, not his movie. Definitely, she did want him. She want, They always wanted each other on all their movies. They were, like, very in love at that period of time. Yeah. Goofy in love. So let us go ahead and start off with the plot. This is an interesting film because it has a prologue and an epilogue, right? So your first right. scene, and, and it's, it's an interesting right. sort of time lapse because you go from one word to the other. So in the beginning, it's the start of World War II, and we see Robert Taylor's character. He's kind of elderly. He's looking. older. He he, has, he's got a grayer mustache. Well, That's about the extent of the older. It's a grayer mustache because they used what they put on artificial Christmas trees for snow. Oh, did they? Yeah, yeah and that's really the only difference yeah. in the character. I thought if he was making quick movement, you know, his uh, gray would leave. We had the abilities to do makeup to make in the 1940s in Citizen Kane to make them look quite old, but yet Robert Taylor yeah. looks the exact yeah. same, except his his mustache is a little grayer. But anyhow, we see him, he's driving a car, he's obviously now a very distinguished officer, and 
he asked the cab driver to take him to, to Waterloo Bridge. They, Like I said, the war has just broken out. World War II has just broken out in this scene. And he wants to go by Waterloo Bridge. And you see him stop on the bridge. And he pulls out this little charm, this little, what? what is you that thing? You think that's charming? It's a billiken. I don't even know what that is. It was an a, um, art teacher in the Midwest made this prototype in the, around 1908. Hmm. And had it patented it became very popular uh, as a good luck charm why i don't know because it's kind of creepy what is it it looks like a cat or something if you if if you if you look at it and then read a little bit about it it's a takeoff on a japanese so if you want to think mickey rooney in breakfast at <laughs> tiffany's you might because nowadays some people look at it and say uh, that it's that's offensive it's offensive huh well, yeah, so I didn't really know what it was. It just looks like this little ceramic figurine. I mean, yeah, it was a precursor to Zippy the Pinhead cartoon. Oh. He's holding this, what do you call it, this good luck charm, we'll just call it, whatever name you call it. This thing. Billabacon or whatever you said. Yeah. Uh, uh, now you made me forget the name. <laughs> well, that's okay. Anyhow, he's holding this, and, and as he's holding this, he goes into this sort of reverie on the bridge, and it, that's the end of the prologue. It's taking mm-hmm. you now into the beginning of the mm-hmm. actual plot in the film and he's again back on the bridge but he's now he now has a black mustache instead of mm-hmm. a gray he's mustache. younger he's much younger yeah, now you know i might go to waterloo bridge and see if that happens too <laughs> the fountain of youth is waterloo bridge so he's on the bridge and at this point you hear this air raid so now actually we're we're in war again but this is actually indicative of world war one we're now in world war one era so he's in the bridge and there's all these silly girls running around doing things on the bridge. silly girls well they're kind of giggly silly girls yeah. He, he, yeah. He, you know and the air raid comes off and he's like come on girls we've got to go and he's trying to take charge of them and getting across a bridge yeah, and he actually says um, oh go to your right and they go to the left and he says no no, <laughs> no the right you're right, you're right. <laughs> my right <laughs> <laughs> That's right, it does. And it, it, there are parts here that are, there are parts in this movie that are funny. Well, it turns out it's, uh, it's the dance troupe that, that Myra Vivian My- Lee is Myra of. Vivian Lee has played, her character name is Myra, and Robert Taylor plays the fellow we're talking about, and his character Roy. name is Roy. Upright stalwart Roy. Roy. And so... Dare we say boring? And well, it is Robert Taylor. <laughs> so there, maybe that's why Lawrence Olivier didn't play the role. So they're like, let's find the most boring person we can find. Oh, Robert Taylor, you perfect. Know, he, he did a, he did a perfectly acceptable job. Yes, he's perfectly a acceptable. Good actor. There's but there's just there's no nuance of anything. It's no. like if you talk to him he's at a party. He's very straightforward. Yeah, if you talk to him at a party after about two minutes, you go, well, it's nice to meet you. Yeah. Yeah, he's. It, I on. think Robert Taylor was very much an actor as Robert Taylor was a person. But anyhow, the girls finally get the idea to kind of rush away in the right direction. And meanwhile, Vivian Lee, Myra, all of a sudden she's dropping her purse. All the stuff is falling out of her purse. And she's trying to gather all these things from her purse. And Roy stops and tries to help her. Like, come on, we kind of have to go. Yeah. We need yeah. to stop worrying about these things. Yeah, and Roy's a gentleman, so he's always going to do it with a certain... Um, yeah. Uh, class. And there's a touch of foreshadowing, I feel like, here when the charm, whatever you call it, the charm goes off and falls in the road and she reaches out to grab it and just in time he pulls her away because a car is coming down the street. That's, it's a good luck charm. Yeah. He's like, what are you doing? What are you? And she's like, "Why? Well, that's my good luck charm. I had to get it. And so then they finally manage to get to the air raid shelter without any major other problems and in the air raid shelter there's like a bazillion people that are kind of smooshed together. Right. They keep getting pushed right. into each other and you can see that they kind of start to like each other. They're talking to you know, each who's other. Who's not going to like Vivian Lee? Who's not going to like Robert Taylor? He's a good-looking so guy. There they are, the two yeah, best-looking people at Waterloo Station. Well, so, yeah, certainly. I mean, nobody else looked better than them in the film. So. I didn't see any. They're in the Waterloo Station, and he finds out that she's part of a ballet troupe, and that they're going to go have a performance tonight. I think she does. She say the performance is at Covent Garden. No, it's not that high class. Oh, this I was is say, a variety. Is this did is a variety say, show. Oh, where does she say? Does she say? She doesn't say where. Okay. I don't. Maybe she does, but it, I don't recall her saying where. But we don't know it's a variety show at that time. We just know that it's a ballet. It's a but ballet. when she says it's at 10, I mean, how many ballets start at 10? Oh, oh, oh. So, it, but we don't know at that time that they're training and they're working their way up to being able to play the big time. Right yeah. now, they're in a variety show. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Because one time the madam says, Yes, you know, she, she does say something. You're no better than the train seals before yes, you. Yes, that's right. She does yeah. say that. Okay, okay, yeah. So he, she says, Well, why don't you come see me in the ballet? He says, Oh, I can't. I have a colonel's dinner, and it's just, Oh, what a shame. A missed opportunity here mm, or whatever. Think about it, Roy. 
Yeah, you think that they're going to sort of just miss each other and that's going to be it. And so they do, they wind off going their separate ways and she's, you know, excited. She has a little friend named Kitty who's played. Kitty is played by a descendant of Robert E. Lee. Yeah, her mother mother was the cousin of Robert E. Lee. Okay, it's a descendant. Uh, no, it's not a descendant because descendants are a direct line underneath a person. For those keeping track at home, that's Wendy One, Mark Zero. Yes, uh, that's okay. Virginia Field is the name of the actress that plays Kitty. And I, I thought she, this was an interesting girl, Virginia Field. She's a very pretty blonde girl. They, they said she probably could have gotten further in her career because she was very attractive. and She was a good actress. She didn't get a lot of roles. That, she never became a big star like possibly thought of her, but because they said her temperament was a little bit suspect. Like, for example, when David O. Selznick came over and tried to hit on her, she actually hit him over the head with a decanter. Oh, they didn't yeah. take kindly to people hitting important producers yeah. over the head with decanters. Vincent Price was impressed with You're supposed with her to too. be allowed to be sexually harassed in that day and age and do well, nothing I about it. Well, I believe you were sexually harassed yeah, in that oh, day yeah, and age. Yeah, certainly you were. But uh, anyhow. But her big time was uh, she was on Perry Mason yeah. quite a few times. But yeah, so and this was her only really big role, I, I thought, from what I saw, read of her. Yep. Scant information. Yeah, so, except that her mother was the cousin of Robert E. Lee, and she hit David O. Selznick over the head with a decanter, which I kind of wish, you know, we had seen, we had a, some footage of that. That would have been well worth seeing. So she has this friend, Kitty, and, you know, she's a fellow ballerina, and they go to the ballet, and you, right away you see this madam of the ballet. Now, are you going to attempt to pronounce this lady's name? Because I would love for oh you to try my. it. Oh, my. Maria Oleksayevna <laughs> OS- Uspinskaya. Ospenskaya. Ospenskaya. Maria Ospenskaya. We're going to give that the be- our yeah. best try. She Would you play- believe she's Russian? She played Madame Olga Kuroa. Let's just call her Madam. We call- she played Madam. She was nominated for two Oscars. She's actually another actually quite good actor in this film. Oh, she's, she's really She's nominated good. for two Oscars, Love Affair and Dodsworth. And she is from Russia, where she actually studied under the great Stanislavski, who was sort of the inventor of what eventually became called method acting. Yeah. She opened her own dance studio in Los Angeles as well. So... Being a dance instructor, let's hope to God she wasn't that way at the dance studio, but she had a feel for what it was and what she was doing. She was a very big believer in Stanislavski's method, and she would actually preach and teach that to folks when she came over to the United States. And not very many people can say they actually studied with Stanislavski, so she was was very lucky. And that's why a woman like that would be in... The Wolfman and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Yeah, I guess you I guess you took what you could get at that point. And again, she might have been under a contract. That's the other thing. These people didn't have much choice when they were under contract, what films they were put yeah, in. And those movies seemed like they'd have been fun to make, too. Oh, I think so. So... Yeah, but the sad thing, what I thought was very sad about it was this, and this is something similar we just had from when we were talking about the birds. She was a heavy smoker, fell asleep with a cigarette and was burned, and she died three days later from her burns. That is a painful way to go. Yeah. And I did not yeah, know that. We just had somebody else. The same thing happened in to somebody in the last film. We were talking about the birds. Let's get back to the plot. So this madam that we see, she's she's not very nice lady. She's very strict and very mean. So anyhow, Myra is telling Kitty about this man she met. She's excited about, but she says, you know, oh, he has to go to the colonel's dinner. So on. she yeah. thinks she's never going to see him again because he has to. The next day, he's supposed to go back to the war. That's another thing he told her. So she figures, oh well, yeah. missed opportunity, whatever. Yeah. And she's in her ballet and she's dancing her ballet and. She's dancing. Who do we see walk into the audience? It's Roy. Roy, he was so interested and fascinated by her that he blew off the colonel's dinner, which is apparently a very important thing he was supposed to go to. I mean, yeah, but we find out later that it's a pretty chummy situation. Yeah. You know, they're not... Uh, well, he doesn't make it out other. when he first talks about True. it. He makes it sound like it's very True. important. And it is still a sacrifice for him, yeah. but, you know. So he comes and he, he see, watch her, he's watching her on the ballet. And actually, I, I really like uh, Robert Taylor's reactions in the scene where he's reacting to her when she goes off the stage. <laughs> He, he yeah. keeps looking for her, and when yeah. she comes back on, he's all pleased. He does a pretty good job in that scene, That's, to be yeah, honest. he does. And her face, she sees him, and her eyes get all big. And It's a beautiful—that's where it's, it's so attractive, because they're wearing the silk Swan-like, ballet yeah. mm-hmm. uh, outfits. One of the best scenes is the section of that scene is the end, where— all of the dancers are close together Mm. so all of their uh, dresses are form the background and it's just a close-up of uh, Myra looking up uh, at him and it's just her eyes it's a beautiful scene yeah 
Yeah, very nice. And again, our cinematographer, I guess some credit also to the director, but she's all excited. She runs backstage. She's talking to Kitty and he sends a note to her basically asking to meet her somewhere at some place and it's intercepted by Madam. Mm-hmm. And she, she, she's... That's gets, a no-no. Yeah, she's like, nope, that's not happening. You're not going. And she forces her to write this rejection note to him and she's very upset about yeah, this. That, that, that's pretty hardcore. Yeah. You know, because she has to... It's like when you get caught and she's, okay, read it to the class. Yeah, yeah, so she she has, has to, to read, read it, it out in front loud. of everybody. And it's embarrassing. Fortunately, Roy keeps it clean. Yeah. But, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, but still, uh, that was, yeah. that's, that's, that's madam, you know, she she's She won't tough. even let her go and see this man just for a night when she's not even working. She's mm-hmm. off. She could, you know, you it's her madam free time. You think madam has ever been in love? No. Probably I would not. Su- suggest that madam is in love with the ballet. Maybe it went horribly wrong and she assumed that's the way it all was. Maybe. I guess we'll never know the backstory of Madam, so we'll just no. have to move forward with this particular. But, but she is a catalyst. Yeah. So. Poor Roy. He gets this letter. He feels rejected. He's just, you know, he's upset. He's running. He's going Roy off. Roy probably doesn't get rejected often. Yeah. Too. But then before he could get out of there, Kitty comes running after him all fast saying she wants to meet you. Where do you want to meet her? And he tells her this. I think it's called the Candlelight what is it called? The Candlelight? I do not remember the name. I think it's called the Candlelight Club or something like Could that. Be. I think it's something Could very be. similar to that. There were a lot of candles there. And and she says, well, we'll get her there, whatever. And he's and then he's all happy. And they, they meet yeah. up at this Candlelight Club. And, and she says an important thing, Kitty. Uh, she says, you know, I hope I'm doing the right thing because I think she knows Myra. And she knows that Myra is not entirely stable. Mm. So she's she's kind of telling Roy, you better be good, you know, because she's not... She doesn't say she's, she's unstable, fra- but she's let's she's let's say not, instead of unstable, maybe we should say fragile, vulnerable. She's vulnerable. Think, she doesn't have much confidence. Yeah, she, I think that's more the that's up. more the word. They meet at the candlelight club and they sit at the and have dinner and they talk. And you do see, like you said, he keeps calling her as a defeatist. She's very pessimistic. She thinks everything is going bad. Not, not mm-hmm. bad, but she just is accepting that nothing is going to go well. You know, she hasn't had a fantastic life. And she hasn't had, like, Roy was brought up. Um, well, we know that more, Roy's background is, yeah, he's, he's wealthy. wealthy. He's had mm-hmm. he's never had to know But we don't really know what like her that. background is. Well, I mean, we find out later that her parents, parents both were, her parents, are, her parents dead, are dead. And evidently she has no extended family because she doesn't have anyone that she either yeah. can rely on or or wants to rely on. Yeah. So I mean, we don't really know all that much of her backstory, yeah. to be honest. But That's true. They don't give you much of her backstory. You get more of somewhere Roy's, along the line that that uh, mentality. She had definitely been has this sort of like, well, what's the point of us being here? You're going to leave. I'm never going to see you again. And he keeps and he's yeah. very optimistic. So he's the opposite of sure. her. So he's like keeps saying, you know, defeatist and teasing her and. You definitely see two completely opposite ends of the spectrum with them. Yeah. One, one yeah. They're completely opposite, but they complement each other well. And they sure. obviously, like they said, opposites attract. In this film, it's correct because they really like each other. And this scene is so beautiful. This is the most beautiful scene to me in the film is when they start to dance and mm-hmm. they're playing Old Lang Syne. And mm-hmm. then they're saying, there's, I read that this was supposed to be happening on New Year's Eve. They don't say it in the yeah, film. Yeah, they never say Happy New Year. No, there's no, 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 no confirmation. Off, but you no also confetti. we have to remember they're they're in a blackout. Well, that's true. That's um, why. That's why. And then the cool yeah. thing about it is, as they're dancing the waltz, that one by one the musicians will. Yeah. T- it's all as done they, in candlelight, and the musicians will take off their. And it's a really beautiful. Uh, it scene. is a beautiful scene, and they uh, because of the cinematography and the way each time a section of the orchestra, when they Puts stop playing, they yeah. turn out their, their candles, candles, and it's, you're left with one violin player and when he finishes he turns out the candles yeah. and at that point it's just the moonlight from the large yeah. windows outside and they have and both of their faces are in silhouette it's like a George Latour painting back from 1700 where they would have a single candle and the person would yeah. be just a, the outline of the face and that was beautiful and the director said that he wanted that he liked that scene to be completely silent, except for the music, of yeah. course, because he was brought up in the silent era and he liked yeah. being able to convey emotion without dialogue, which Vivian Lee does in spades throughout this movie. You yeah. Know? Well, so. but I mean, that scene itself is just so beautiful and romantic, and you can just, you, they don't need to say, you tell they're, they've fallen in love at this oh, point. They're it's gone. beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's very beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I find it the most touching scene in the film. There are a variety, really. Yeah. That's, that's one of them. 
<laughs> then the next thing that happens is they, they think that's their last night together. He's going to have to go off to the war. So mm-hmm. he takes her back to her place and they feel, well, this is the last time we'll ever see each other. Yeah. And Roy's a gentleman. So he's not he's not saying, he doesn't say, hey, baby, this up? is our last yeah. night, you know, yeah. let's whoop it up. Yeah. So he drops her off and they think that they'll never see each other again. And she goes upstairs. And the next thing, it's the next morning. And she's she's kind of upset and depressed. And, yeah, she's, and she's fixing her purse. Yeah, it's it's kind of raining outside. It's a yeah. gloomy day, I guess, goes along with her mood. And she she's looking out the window, and then she's looking, and then you see her, you just see a close-up of Vivian Lee's face, and her eyes get real big. Yeah. And then you see that Roy's standing outside in the rain, and she keeps rubbing the yeah. window like, is that yeah. is that really him? Yeah, which really, that's, it dirties the window up with your, uh, <laughs> with your grease. But the, that's a wonderful scene just because the number of emotions that go through her face when she's watching it's you know it she's depressed a little bit and then she's curious what's that then she realizes it's him she gets elated then she said no it couldn't be him and so she's just it's a it's a gradual up and down until you reach the pinnacle and she's just nuts yeah and then she's trying to put on her clothes real fast and she keeps doing it all wrong and messing up and finally she gets out to him and he informs her that he has what two more there's yeah. There's a mine yeah. in the something. There's, he says, There's the mines in the channel, yeah. so they can't They can't, they can't go can't out, cross. so they have yeah. another 48 hours. Although why, one wonders why he just decided to stand out in the rain for an extended period of time in the hopes that she might look out the window rather think, than uh, say because uh, it's a movie, Wendy. sending a, a message or yeah. uh, <laughs> a letter or knocking on the door. That's true. Well, <laughs> it's a little odd. <laughs> it's a little odd. i just odd. stand in the rain and hope she looks out the window. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. um, well, maybe it's because it made for a great scene. Well, yes, of course. Because it's, then they go out and, yeah. and she sees him and she has an umbrella and they kiss. Well, right before she kisses, she, you know, the umbrella goes away, so they just get to kiss in the rain. Yeah. And that's always fun. And so. then he tells her that he wants to get married, but he has to go around and ask permission from people. Yeah. He has yeah. to ask permission of his colonel, and this is when he goes. And the colonel's kind of a funny character, I guess. And he comes in during the colonel's lunch, and he's all in a big state of emergency. Robert Taylor runs in, and he's like, I need to talk to you right now. Yeah. It's very important. And he's like, I'm eating my lunch. And by the way, where were you at the dinner last night? Yeah, it, but it's all with a little smile. But eventually he says, you know, I can't do this. You have to talk to the top dog. Right. And fortunately, the top dog is your relative. Yeah. So, For, yeah. Uh, fortunately, you know the head guy. So he says, yeah, I can't make this decision. You have to go talk to this guy. He's like, and please, if you have any more things going on, not at mealtime. <laughs> that's why I said he's a little bit of a comic relief, this character. And so yeah, the, there's not much comedy in the No. In oh, the this movie. no. There's a very... You uh, might have just had it right there at yeah, that scene. Yeah, that might be possibly. it. So he goes to see his, I guess, it's, isn't it his uncle? His uncle, the, the Duke. Duke. The Duke, and yeah. this is the one. This he goes is the, to the Duke's house, which is looks sort of like a Ritz-Carlton hotel. This is C. Aubrey Smith, who is was a very popular character actor in the 30s yeah. and 40s. He's you in see, a you ton of movies. Yeah, he's very familiar. Yeah, he's in Rebecca. He's in Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. He's in Little Women. He's in just a ton of movies. Mm-hmm. Started the Los Angeles Cricket Club. Oh, yeah. So anyhow, he goes and asks him permission. And of course, since he knows him and he knows that he would, you know, he thinks he's a reliable source. She's a dancer. He says a dancer. Yeah, there's another little. A dancer. You know what? His characters are a little amusing, too. He is. uh, Because he also has a sparkle in his eye. Yeah. And boy, does he love a dancer. Yes. And he explains (laughs) to Roy that, you know, I fell in love with a dancer and I wanted her to be my bride, but she wouldn't have me. Yeah. Uh, She could have been your Grandmother, Roy. <laughs> well, yeah, or whatever, whatever. aunt, whatever it aunt? was. Okay. No, it's something like that. Yeah. So he gives Roy his permission, and Roy's all excited. <laughs> Robert Taylor running. Just, what? He looks so strange to me. But anyhow, like that thing he does where he salute, does that little salute. Yes, right. <laughs> I think that's a little funny, too. His little salute as he goes in and out and running back and forth. Several times, because he has to go back yeah. and get her yeah. uh, vital information. Yeah, because he doesn't know anything about her at all, not even her yeah. last name. And that's when we know that, that's when we find out that her parents, that she doesn't yes. have any parents left. And that's kind of important, it seems like to me, because you have no support to fall yeah. back on. Her only real support that it's she Kitty. has is Kitty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a good, she's, Kitty's a good support. She is a good support. She's a good support. So anyhow, he goes out there. They're like, okay, good. We're going to go get married. And then they go to the the priest or the church. And he says, well, you know, we can't marry you. It's after three. And we can't marry you today. When And a lot of people might think that is strange, but 
the truth is, and British law imposed time limits on marriage ceremonies that was enacted in 1837 in order to prevent clandestine marriages, which were deemed to be a particular problem at that time. What's a clandestine marriage? Like a, a, a marriage, a secretive eloping type marriage. Oh, I did that. Well, uh, <laughs> You weren't in Britain in 1837, yeah. so you were okay. Yeah. But it, it, the 1837 law restricted marriage ceremonies between 8 a.m. and noon, and then in 1886 it was extended to 3 p.m., and then in 1934 to 6 p.m., which means, well, I mean... Yeah, and Roy does his best to try to get him to bend the rules. Yeah, yeah. but th- that's why. That people might say, well, why couldn't they get married after 3 o'clock? That right. is why. And it just says that all time restrictions were re- only removed in 2012. Oh, my gosh. In Britain. Yeah, I just thought he was a lazy vicar. No, there was a, a law. They weren't allowed to marry because they might, you know, be trying to run yeah. off together at yeah. night. And maybe people would get drunken yeah. <laughs> together yeah. and they'd be like, let's run off and get married. I uh, guess that was it, what was happening. Roy asked him, don't, don't you believe in short engagements? And he says, well, maybe if you're elderly. Yeah. <laughs> So they can't get married. And that this is the beginning of the things where the things just they just miss what could be a good mm-hmm. outcome. And there's several of these instances where you're just missing a possibility that happens here. And so that's the first one. But we missed something in there that's kind of important. Uh, when she's in the room and it's raining, before she sees Roy, doesn't Madam come into the room and say, you know, I'm surprised to see that you're awake at this time of day. Yes, getting because in she so was late. out last night. And that's when she gives her the ultimatum, don't do that again. And if you do that again, I'm going to have to let you go. Yeah. So and she warns her. and then So she's been warned. But Myra thinks she's going to get married. So she thinks it doesn't matter whether or not she True. comes back to the ballet. Everything's so coming up roses. So she thinks she's going to be married to Roy. They're going to go off and live happily ever after. He's going to take care of her. Myra goes back and, and tells Kitty what's going on. And she announces to the group at the boarding house that to all the other married. dancers that she's getting oh, married. Oh, and that's when they go off. And they all start to go, go off, off to the ballet. And she doesn't but she go. gets a phone call. She gets a phone call from Roy who says, I'm she so... Because th- the next morning she thinks they're going to go get married. Right. And and so Roy says, I'm sorry, I have to get on the train. I had, yeah, and, I had to go. And so Myra now has a decision. She either keeps her job and goes to the play. But it's too late. By the time she gets there, she's already too late. That it's, was the it's problem. It's too late was. at the train. But she decides rather than go oh, to the play right. and keep her job. She has to go to the train. She, and goes to, she goes to the train to station. See him off. And that's where those long pans happen with Roy going to the train. He's frantic. He's looking around. Yeah, he hopes he sees her. her. He doesn't see her. And then she comes in and she's frantic. She's trying to find him. And most she does is they're able to just see each other just from a distance wave. and say goodbye. So by the time she gets back to the ballet, it's too it's, late. It's over. And so she's in the dressing room, and all the girls come around and say, you know, what happened? How was it? And she says, you know, we actually didn't actually get to meet. And at that time, Madam walks in. Yeah, that's when she walks says. walks over and says. Yeah, you're done. You're done. And then Kitty, unfortunately. Tries to stick up for her. Stick up for her and give her. Madam a little one-two. And Madam doesn't like that very much and tells her assistant to please find two dancers yes. for the next performance. Yeah, so now neither of them have jobs. Roy is gone. They, so again, there's, an, there's another one of your just missed opportunities. To, she doesn't get the chance to say goodbye to him. She goes all the way to the train, sacrifices her job at the ballet just to see him off, and she mm-hmm. doesn't even get to say goodbye mm-hmm. to him. So another point where just missing, and it's it's really sad. And then so well, it's sad, but they think that it's going to be okay. They're going to be able to find more work. Yeah, they do but think that. It, they, they're optimistic. They yeah. think, oh, we can go find any ballet, and we can do whatever we want. And but they're not wealthy people, and it turns out that they were more or less living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, and slowly and, they see there's not really yeah. any work to be had. There's not really anything. Yeah. And and actually, now we see Myra kind of switch around. Now she's a little more optimistic when before she was very defeatist. And now she's... Kitty's kind of depressed, Kitty's and Myra's like more optimistic. Yeah. Like Kitty says, oh, she's scared. She's never been well, scared we'll before. This, we'll get the. We'll just eat this food. We're going to yeah. be okay. And you see a different Myra. She's different than she was in the beginning. And they, and you also see the apartment that they now live in is dingy, dark, dirty. So they're not right. living it up, but they're not finding work either. But Kitty. I think that Myra's still hopeful because she knows Roy's out there. She thinks that they'll find jobs. Roy will come back. She has this this optimistic look, outlook now. Mm-hmm. And Kitty's the one that's like feeling like, oh, we're never going to make it, this and that. Mm-hmm. And then Myra gets summoned to go meet Roy's mom. Yeah, she goes to meet Roy's mom and she's, she's sitting in the restaurant. This is another really great job, I think, by Vivian Lee in this particular scene. Mm-hmm. She's sitting in the restaurant and she's waiting on Roy's mom and Roy's mom is really late and she's waiting and waiting, waiting. And finally the waitress says, would you want a paper to look at? 
She's like, sure. And she's looking at the paper. And they do a really, really good job in the scene with the camera work, too, and mm-hmm. scrolling down scroll the down. names. She looks at it a little bit, then she puts the she paper aside. That's a depressing yeah. subject. And then some, for some reason, she's kind of drawn to look at mm-hmm. it again and sees Roy's name there. Officer's Lost, I think Officer's it says. Officer's Lost. And there's Roy's name. And just mm-hmm. as soon as she reads that, and then she faints. Mm-hmm. And the owner, I think, comes and gives her some brandy and revives her. And yeah. just right after that, in comes Roy's mother. She, while while she's taking a big drink yeah, of bourbon. that's right. That's she right. brings her glass down, and it's her mother, who is a square-jawed, yeah. upright citizen. And the mother is not too impressed with that. And at that point, Myra is a little bit tipsy, plus completely distraught. And she even takes the newspaper and puts it under the table so the mother won't see yes, it. Yes, obviously the mother has not seen it because she's very cheerful and chipper. Her name, yeah. her name in this film is Lady Margaret Cronin. She is played by Lucille Watson, who was nominated for one Oscar watch on The Rhyme, which is a Betty Davis movie. And she also played Aunt March in Little Women this lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she does a good job in this. She does. Uh, she's a little reserved when she, she sees her drinker, but then friend. she's very friendly. She wants to And like Myra is behaving in the most bizarre fashion. Well, we know why she is, but to any person that was yeah. normal yeah. there would think she was a complete nutcase. Yeah, the mother, the mother is calm and trying to be nice, and at some point, Myra just blurts out, where's the tea? We have, we we're supposed to have tea. And then she says, why are you looking at me like that? Yeah. She gets really hysterical, mm-hmm. and the mother's just like, okay. The mother says, you know, I'm trying to see yeah. in you what, what Roy, Roy sees, sees in, in you. you. And quite yeah. frankly, she can't. Yeah. Because Roy's never seen her like this either. So, and when she parts, uh, she says, remember, I tried to be your friend. Yeah. And what she's unaware of is that Myra has just found out that Roy is dead and the mother doesn't know. And she doesn't want to tell the mother that either right. because obviously she doesn't want to upset the mother. Now, who wants to tell a mother that their son is right, exactly. missing? Well, no, it's, it's dead. Out and out dead. She thinks he's dead. Yeah. And so then she faints again before she As leaves. she gets up from the table, she faints. She becomes ill and apparently Kitty takes yeah. care of her. When she starts to recover a little bit, she comes to find out what Kitty is doing to take care of her. Well, Kitty walks into the apartment one evening and Myra says, so how was the dance? And Kitty says, well, you know, fine. And Myra says, Kitty, I I went to the theater. You weren't there. Where's the money been coming from? And this is where they skirt around the word yes. prostitution. Yeah, they don't they don't say it outright, but you are aware yeah. it, any sort of person and, with any kind of knowledge. Yeah, and would I suppose pick up on that before you get to when you get to that state where you know the only way I'm going to be able to make money is to do that. Myra asks, "Did you ever consider killing yourself, more or less?" Mm. And Kitty says, uh, "No, I want to live." I want to live, and I'm going to make it through this. And Myra is okay, but Myra more or less gets a look in her eye that's a very interesting look, and it's one you haven't seen in the movie yet. And it's a look of resignation of... I, she knows what she's going to need yeah. to do. So and the, she doesn't have any reason not to at this point because she thinks Roy is dead. So yeah, it's not like she's yeah. waiting for and Roy to come and back. And she's broken. She doesn't like the fact that, that Kitty has been doing this, this basically to buy her to help food her. and help her with medicine and that kind of thing. So the next scene we see is back on Waterloo Bridge. And that's where the Monet paintings come in a little bit because he painted Waterloo Bridge so often because he loved the atmosphere because at that time the Industrial Revolution had caused a smoky smog slash fog Mm -hmm. in London and it was thick. And so earlier in the movie, when we saw Waterloo Bridge, it was fairly clear and you could see London in the background, you know, but now it's become more somber. It's the atmosphere is starting to take over a little bit. And she has a very hesitant look on her face. She's at the bridge a man comes by and says, perhaps we could take a stroll. And they go off. And, yeah, and that's that's the beginning. that's the beginning. That's the beginning. You start to see a difference in the character. She's dressed a little more flashy. She's talking a little bit different. She has a couple scenes where you see her talking to other ladies on the bridge and whatnot that yeah, are probably a, doing the same thing. It's a community. They know each yeah, other. They yeah. would know what each other what, yeah. what they're doing. And so doing. That, then you get to the scene where she's in the train station. Obviously, she's waiting for a bunch of soldiers to come in. And she and you've seen a transformation in that because in the first scene where she's we see much more confident oh, she's, now. She's, she's got walking a little around, bit of a smiling, smiling at all the soldiers, and, and you then, know, she's trying to pick her next mark. She's trying to yeah, find her next John. 
The, no, not you, uh, Mark. Oh, okay. In that scene, she's learned the ropes. Yeah. She's learned the body language. She has the dress. And at one point, she walks by several guys, and she says hi to one guy yeah. and he says hi and keeps on walking yeah. and then because you could think well you know she's kind of liking this she's gotten comfortable and everything when he walks away she turns her head down and the look on her face is just like she almost wants to throw up she's disgusted and she's uh, it's a it's a very interesting look. Yeah, I mean, even though she seems more confident, this isn't really yeah, ingrid. This, this she isn't does her not thing. like what but she's doing. The, again, you the, you get the close up of Vivian Lee in her face and the shock surprise because who's coming down? Mm-hmm. Roy. Mm-hmm. Roy's there, and she's he sees and he's her. He's good looking. Yeah. He's handsome. He's confident. Except, and he goes, Myra, Myra. Right. Well. Oh my God. I'm sorry, but when I heard that. <laughs> I immediately thought of Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life because if you go back and listen to it, it looks it sounds exactly like Jimmy Stewart at the near after he realizes that it was just a dream and he can go back and see everybody. But I think Waterloo Bridge was first. I'm not saying it wasn't. Yeah, I'm just no. saying it's interesting is it's that just, it didn't. Roy all this time has been very uh, well spoken and calm no, he, and all that kind of. No, when he gets excited, he does this very yeah. silly. This is Robert Taylor. This is the problem with Robert Taylor, I guess. He gets criticized for two things: for not showing a lot of emotion, and then when he shows emotion. It's just so ridiculous, and yeah. he looks absurd, and it's yeah. over the top. And that's, that's where the, the director problem. says, "Okay, Robert, uh, don't show yeah. any emotion." Yeah, I mean that's the problem with Robert Taylor, and yeah. I think that's why he became the actor, kind of wooden actor he became, because it was like he couldn't do either. Yeah. It was too bad. But, but anyhow, he thinks, that she he, he thinks is she came him. down to see him. Oh, how did you know I was going to be here? And she, <laughs> of course, she doesn't say, "Well, I'm here trolling for men." She, she's so shocked and astonished, and she just kept saying, "You're not dead. You're not dead." And she's so amazed by this, and he just thinks they're going to pick up where they. They left off and they're going to get married he takes her to the family home to introduce her to the family oh he wants to go that night and she tries to get out yeah, of it yeah and, and you can saying, see you, know, you can see the the thing weighing on her she doesn't want to tell him cuz she doesn't want him to have a bad opinion of her but she also doesn't want to keep encouraging him because yeah. she doesn't want him to she take, tries she uh, tries to get out of it yeah she, she doesn't want him to take a spoiled woman i guess right and um, she's that's a terrible she's so worried about she that. feebly says you know i i can't roy just look she at me and try. I, I don't have a i don't i don't have a dress where roy says well let's go buy yeah. dresses <laughs> yeah she does try to get out of it but there's a lot of times she's protesting against things and he just kind of runs rampant over well, her roy is the kind of man he that just... i think you like wendy he sees women as an aimless group of sheep that need to be led <laughs> So she doesn't get to make any decisions. He's always telling like her, you're going to do that, you're going to do this, we're going to do this. And um, This is the kind of man you think I would like? No. I, I said, was going to say, you don't know me very no, well, Mark. No, I do know you, and, uh, and I know that's not the kind of guy you like. <laughs> but that's maybe more common in that age. Yeah. But, yeah, right. she just... I he just kind that. of sweeps her up and takes her everywhere, you know. Her biggest so- decision would be to tell the cook what to cook. Yeah, so they go to the family's party, and and first she's scorned by some of the women, but then the Duke comes in, and again, very charming, making little jokes. Oh, because all of the ladies uh, and some of the men at the big dance, because... You know, Roy called his mother. They're going to go up and, and meet. And the mother gathers everybody in the area for a big dance in their palatial estate. And some of the women are saying, because she doesn't have a name, she doesn't have a pedigree that yeah. they're aware of. Another guy questions whether she even knows how to read. The point is that she's kind of getting scorned by this group. The Duke comes up and he dances with her. And that shows everybody that he approves of the union, which kind of makes everybody more respectful towards her. The mother comes in and gives her this lovely talk, which, of course, makes Myra feel horrible yes and Mm -hmm. she says how lovely she is how wonderful she is and you can just see Myra just getting more and more upset this Mm -hmm. big burden weighing on her that she can't tell anybody and she gets so upset about that she runs into the mother's room and she pretty much confesses the whole thing to the mother she says, I've just, it's just been horrible. And the mother says, you know, I know you thought Roy was dead and it is horrible. And yeah. the line she says is, oh, Lady Cronin, you're so naive. Yeah. And that's all she had to say. And Lady she, Cronin she, immediately knew. She realizes. But then she doesn't. She's still going to give her a yeah, chance. She's still going to give her a chance. And Myra says, you know, absolutely. She basically says, absolutely not. I'm leaving. And I, she runs off and she leaves Roy a note and she runs off and he doesn't know where to find her. So we don't want to tell the ending. We're not going to do that. One interesting thing I thought was there was a couple ladies that played in both the 1931 version and the 1940 version. Yes. The landlady, her landlady called Ethel Mm -hmm. Griffies played in both versions. Mm -hmm. And also the lady that she, the old lady she meets on the bridge. 
she also played oh, in both selling the both flower, versions. the flower lady. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. So basically, on Silver Screen Time Machine, we'd give our star rating. So I would be very interested to say, what do you rate this movie one to five? I thoroughly enjoyed it aesthetically because of the just the saturated blacks and whites and Vivian Lee's character was so good she was and the second to last scene they just upped their game everything upped their game and it was a really stunning scene I'm going to give it a 4.5 because there's nothing perfect in this world. Ooh, I'm surprised. That's very high. Hey, I, I like the movie. I love Waterloo Bridge. It's a film that I particularly picked. I think there's a lot of cookie-cutterness about this there film. There is, sure. So I am going to give it a 3.5. Mm-hmm. Let's I, average that out to a 4. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 3.5 because I do love Vivian Lee in the role. I do love the cineematography. I, I like the use of old Lang Syde. Mm-hmm. I think it's Who very touching. Who doesn't like Tchaikovsky? And this is a very poignant movie. You will need some tissues when you're watching this movie, I think. But You will need some tissues, and you're going to need a psychology book. <laughs> you know, because her character, that's... I, yeah. I've known some people like that. And it's just like a whole series that. of what could have been, I feel like. This film is a whole series of what could have been if something had just been tweaked a little differently. And that's what makes the film even more sad and tragic, I think, for mm-hmm. the parts the parts that we talk about. It could have been something else. But yeah, three and a half. Okay, 4.25. It was cookie cutter. <laughs> if you want to do the 0.25, nobody's ever done that before. That's a new one. I'm glad you liked it so much, to be honest. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect. I still want to see the early one because I like the raw, and I realize it was cookie cutter, and I realize Robert Taylor, you know, yeah, is Robert other, Taylor. But the other problem is like Robert good. Taylor isn't isn't the best. It's it's just very much to me a product of the studio system. I don't think a lot of it was on location. I think a lot of it was shot in a studio. It is a good film. It is worth seeing. And there are a couple of performances and a couple of people who raise it to a, a better level yes. than what it. Uh, the typically cinematography been. and Vivian Lee are the great things about this film. They're well worth watching this film. But that is all the time we have for today. So thank you again, Mark, for being our guest. We really appreciate you coming out and talking. Thank you. And for Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy's Classic Film Review, this is Wendy saying goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And please leave us a comment or a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Intro and outro music composed by Heidi Engel. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick. Recorded at PCTV Studios, Pittsburgh, PA. See you next time.